welcome to Fantastic Talks. Uh, this podcast is part of the Imagining the Impossible Network, uh, and it's created by our team of very passionate uh, academics uh, who are dedicated to bringing research concerning the fantastic in media. Uh, my name is Sarah, and uh, I'm a recent film and media bachelor student from Denmark. Literally uh, got my last grade this weekend. <laughs> Yes, um, and I'm, I'm really excited for today's very first uh, fantastic podcast talk. Um, so today our guest will be talking about the making and unmaking of female superheroes. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Hi, Sarah. I'm Stephanie Green from Griffith University in Australia, and I've worked here for about 12 years. I'm a writer and also a, a critic, a literary and screen narrative critic um, and I'm really excited to be here to talk with you about my research today. Great. Um, so let's just get right into it. What are you working on? Um, over the last few years I've been working on a series called Penny Dreadful, um, particularly its relation to how it portrays women and most recently in relation to how it portrays women in violence. But now I've moved to focus on another series, um, which is Jessica Jones, the Marvel Cinematic Universe series, which ran for three seasons and has now come to an end. But it's quite um, quite an interesting and unique show, uh, particularly if you're interested, as I am, in how contemporary popular culture sh uh, shows women and their roles. So um, initially I began looking at Jessica Jones, the main character. But at the moment I'm working on a paper about Trish Walker, who's a um, kind of the best friend and half-sister or adopted sister of Jessica Jones. And um, it's she initially seems like a very sweet person, but as time goes on, she takes a darker path. Mm. Maybe we should start summarising, because I haven't seen Penny Dreadful, actually, the show. I've just heard of it, um, but could you just tell me about what it's about? So these two shows are both um, fantasy, gothic, horror, you know, depending on where you place your, your definitional boundaries. Dreadful um, mm. is absolutely fascinating for me because I began my career in Victorian studies. Oh. I was also interested in gothic literature and that, you know, that the Victorian era and my interest in gothic literature kind of came together around Penny Dreadful. Mm -hmm. Also been working in screen studies. So... Yeah, Penny Dreadful is a show that's built on a number of really um, famous or, or classic horror or gothic texts like Dracula, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein. Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray. There's a few other sort of what they call pulp fiction uh, that um, have also been mm. used in this show, particularly from the early American Wild, Wild West. Um where, you know, the dime store novel and the sort of the classic um, novels of that period written by, you know, Zane Grey and uh, some of the, the very popular writers of that time. So they've, they've mainly set it in London, but they moved to the, to, you know, the, the American Wild West well, The United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that that's a show that's got a group of characters. It's an ensemble show. It's absolutely brilliantly done. It's um, very inventive, but it's um, but it uses these. It doesn't follow the storylines exactly of the original influencing novels, but it does adopt the, the characters and some of the themes from those novels, and it uses them to create something very new. And that you know is the TV series, but it's also gone on to create new graphic fiction and you know games and so on and so forth. So it's kind of 
multi-platform um, universe of its own. Right. And Penny Dreadful is kind of a, an, I mean, an interesting piece of media in the modern sense, because it's already based on a lot of classical stories. The Gothic stories, when are the time era that they're written in? All of the texts that Penny Dreadful sources are either from the 19th century or the very early 20th century. Most of them are actually from the late 1880s, late 1880s and 90s, um, but the, they do also draw on Mary, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was, I think, 1816, it was published, and it's a very, I may not have that date exact, but around that time, that it's the earliest text that it refers to, but it's been so very influential across literature, theatre, cinema, you know, it's a classic uh, very iconographic text. Um, they also refer to some theatrical um, works that were performed in London, um, sort of scary vampire plays and things like that of the sort of um, popular theatre. But um, but as I say, it sort of moves through the Victorian and the Edwardian period, but it doesn't come into the present, uh, at least not in the TV series. Right. And that's what I think is interesting about the two things that you have chosen to talk about in at least one aspect of it, is that the Penny Dreadfuls are sort of the pop fiction of its era, where Jessica Jones and the Marvel Universe is very much the pop fiction of our era. I've watched Jessica Jones, or some of it at least, um, and I think it's interesting in the way that uh, the parallels and contrasts between female characters across this era, because I mean, the Penny Dreadful series is made nowadays, but there still is that uh, leftover of the fact that the the source materials was written in a different time entirely. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really drew me to both these texts. Um, partly it's the way that um, we can think of Penny Dreadful as looking to the past and to past representations of women from my point of view. There's many interesting things to talk about in this show, um, including its rendition of, you know, the story of humankind. But but what interests me in the current research is this way, the way it talks about the roles of women and how women were struggling in the 19th century to break out of the limitations, um, seek the opportunity to to be able to get educated, uh, to to vote, to enter the professions, and to participate as leaders. And so they, uh, those women, you know, in that time in the historical period, were struggling to do that. And that's alluded to in the series in various ways. In, in sorry, in Jessica Jones, um, yes, you're right. It's contemporary, um, and the women are already strong and um, active in many ways, and yet they're still limited either by the expectations of their their families or by the expectations of societies, uh, and in a sense by the infrastructure of exploitation that I think women inhabit in our culture. I mean, it's it's hard to escape, even in um, so-called free modern Western democracies, um, where there's less obvious constraint, there still are things that hold women back. Um, and those are partly the way that women women's bodies are shown, partly the way that relations between males and females uh, are still operating. Um, I made a, a, a kind of a note for myself when I was preparing for this talk, you know, what are the things that women still get challenged by? And, and here in Australia, I'm not going to speak for um, other countries, but here in Australia, you know, domestic violence is a serious major problem. We have more than one woman a week dying at the hands of partner violence, male partner violence. So, right, yeah. Extraordinary to me that in this day and age that should still be happening, um, and you know the way that women are portrayed in um, 
in the, in advertising and popular culture still, you know, it's very um, lascivious. And there's a funny moment in Jessica Jones when um, they're playing on the original comic series that was the, the origin source for the, the stories in Jessica Jones. And at that time, um, the character Jessica Jones became a, a superhero. So her her um, adopted sister Trish Walker thinks maybe she should wear a superhero costume and she finds this kind of skimpy shiny pale blue little number and says you know you could wear this Jessica and and when you're when you're doing your superhero stuff and you know being a kind of cynical um you know sarcastic um completely unconventional um hard drinking um kind of uh, character she looks with scorn at this <laughs> at this shiny blue um, outfit and says no no way man I'm not going to do that <laughs> so that's a kind of nice little way of, of satirizing um they're being very direct in in those kinds of like yeah, meta yeah. narratives of just speaking directly to it <laughs> absolutely and you know making fun of the cliches yeah also pointing out that the um that the tropes of the su- female superhero is still really very gendered the modern ones are also more self-reflective than Penny Dreadful might be because they take themselves more seriously in the sense of they they haven't it's a it's a postmodern thing to sort of keep thinking about like, oh, we're all aware that this costume is skimpy and stuff, but it's still something that uh appeals to us or we should we need to deal with it in some way. But how much self-awareness do you think that there are in the in the Penny Dreadfuls? Uh, in the series or in their era? Well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I guess the notion of the self was a, is a relatively modern invention in some ways, but <laughs> the characters, all of the characters in Penny Dreadful do wrestle in, to some extent with the notion of who they are and what they should do. Uh, not in the same way, uh, in that conscious, self-conscious projected way that I think you're right, Jessica and Trish do. But, but for example, the original, um, uh, not the original, the, the character that is representing Frankenstein, the, the, the monster or the creature, whom, um, who's known initially in the series as Caliban, he, he wrestles with who he is. He's, he's like the original Frankenstein from the novel. He's lonely and he wants to be part of a community and therefore he seeks a partner and Victor Frankenstein comes along and makes a woman for him out of the, the dead body of the beautiful Brona Croft, and he creates this uh, female creature called Lily, uh, the flower of rebirth, you know. And um, and they, and he he wrestles with with who he is, and he goes on wrestling with who he is because she rejects him, <laughs> and and she herself has you know a dawning sense of who that she is not the um, the you know the. Uh, figure of dom- Victorian domesticity that she is in fact a woman who um, is a su- is far stronger, far cleverer, and very much you know she uses the word superior to to those around her, to the humans around her, and she um, she makes a big speech, a couple of big speeches during the series about what it is to be better and how she's going to make a, a new race of people and the politics of that are very overt. You know that she's talking about the superiority of of um, women but at the same time she's not self-aware because she's not empathetic and so that that's a struggle for her the other character the main character of Vanessa Ives is also aware of herself and aware of her suffering and she actually has some interesting conversations with Caliban the, the creature the male creature about 
the meaning of life, about what it is to be drawn towards evil, about what evil is, um, and what it is to, in fact, not be like others. And that might be one of the main interesting points in relation to your question, I think, Sarah, in this series is, you know, to what extent are we like others? To what extent are we fully able to be ourselves? And, you know, how do we manage to live with ourselves in the gap between those two things? I mean, there's also a certain degree of it being, especially the woman's plight, that women especially have this idea put upon them that they have to fit within certain roles. So the idea of these women acting even more against these expectations of them, I think is, is what makes it sound so interesting, at least, or what I think is kind of unique about something that is fantastical oh, or otherworldly. That's a really great point. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I think what's interesting about these shows is exactly that. <laughs> One of the things, which is that they're pointing out this, this, uh, uncertainty between, you know, what they are, what we can do, what's limiting us. And in the case of Vanessa Ives, she wants to be a strong, independent woman. She wants to resist the the pressure of her predator, this, you know, vampire demon who's trying to break through from the spiritual realm into the human realm. And she keeps this creature at bay for two seasons in the show. But then when she loses her community because they go off to fight other battles, she's lonely and bereft and depressed. And that vulnerability allows the demon to take take control. Um, that seems weirdly, I mean, not weirdly, but it seems like a a very big metaphor in terms of like the isolation of partners who have abusive partners and how so. when their community or when the people leave them that they sort of fall prey to that kind of men or that kind of partner. Yeah, um, I mean, coercive control has become a very um, dominant theme very recently in our, in our media. And I think it's very important to be aware of how potent that is as a tool to control in a negative way. And it's interesting you raise that because it makes a nice segue into Jessica Jones. I mean, right. Vanessa is subject to this, the, the vampire demon. He's played by Christian Camargo and Vanessa Ives is played by Eva Green. And they, they're just fantastic at, you know, inhabiting their roles. Um, but he preys on her in a seductive, intellectually seductive way. He's very clever. He's very sexy. And, and you know, she he creeps up on her until he's basically trying to sell her the idea that, you know, when they join together and they bring their dark energy together, they will rule together rule the earth. But, of course, he's not really thinking about her. He's thinking about how he can suck all the energy out of her and destroy everything that lives on, on the planet. So, um, ultimately, she does resist him. But the problem and the that many critics have pointed out is the way that happens is she sacrifices her life and gives the gun to her former lover, um, Ethan, who's a werewolf, and um, and he actually shoots her. And in killing her, the demon ha- loses his, his control. Right, which in the metaphorical sense that if it's the parallel to that this Absolutely. fantastic or monstrous women are supposed to represent the current plight of women, it's just very wrong or bizarre or off-putting it's very disturbing to, to yeah, have like my current partner will just have to like relieve me of this grief yeah. instead in a very <laughs> violent way it's like no 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 that's not a solution here <laughs> no it's not it's a violent it's a violent passive solution and it's not one that can ever i mean the destruction of this this 
brilliant woman's life, you know, is, is not a solution. And uh, there are many reasons why the show did that. I, we understand that it was uh, the, the series was wrapped up very quickly and unexpectedly and they had to find a kind of quick ending and it really didn't seem to me to echo the original themes of the show at all. But it's an interesting connection with Jessica Jones where the character of Jessica, Jessica Jones in season one has been under the spell of a, a supervillain, uh, Kilgrave, uh, brilliantly played by David Tennant, and uh, it, their relationship exactly models a kind of extreme version of a, of a relationship that is, you know, one of co coercive control and, and domesticated violence. And um, many people will know the character in the series because um, they were popular as graphic novels or comic books long before the TV series began. The TV series is very, really it's quite unlike most of the other shows in the cinematic universe, with the exception perhaps of Luke Cage, which is another social comment show that I think works very well. But in the case of Jessica Jones, um, you know, she's abducted, she's held under the spell of this fellow, this monster fellow, who himself is a victim, actually. I mean, that's one of the interesting things is that the, the sequence of victim, perpetrator, victim, perpetrator sort of rolls on and you you really get an interesting comment about that. So he, um, but he is terrible. You know, he does the worst possible things to people and he somehow gets entertainment out of it and he forces her to just maim and, and even at the end kill people. But ultimately the trauma of that, the shock of what he's asking her to do breaks the spell and she's able to um, to break away from him and escape. And she, she forms a new persona as a private investigator. And some agency good at- by getting an agency. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly, literally and metaphorically setting out, you know, as an agency to herself. Um, and she's depressed and dark and, and she drinks a lot of whiskey. Of course, being a superwoman, she's not very um, vulnerable to alcohol, so she can drink a lot of whiskey. Mm, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, she's a, she's not able to do the most incredible things, but she can leap, almost fly, so she can leap very high and leap down from a very high and she's physically very strong, which is an important thing to yes, note. Like, like um, the character of Lily in Penny Dreadful, she's physically extremely strong, much stronger than most humans, which gives her a degree of confidence and uh, autonomy and control that you know most women don't have. And that because she's actually stronger than than Kilgrave, <laughs> the the man who manipulates her, which is an ironic situation because if she wasn't weakened by mind she could have actually defeated him which is not the case necessarily for most women who are in abusive relationships most women have the fear of being actually physically weaker than their partner and that's part of the fear as to why they might stay in that kind of situation so the idea that in a fantastical verse universe that they sort of point out that it's not necessarily about whether you are physically stronger than your exactly. opponent. It is about the mental manipulation of the exactly. situation. And I heard an interview once with um, with Christian Ritter, actually by David Tennant, because he has his own podcast where he, he talks to people uh, in his previous uh, projects. And she said that she had actually never um, expected there to be such a big response on Jessica Jones in terms of uh, disenfranchised women who reacted so strongly to it. It was only after that they made it that it it really dawned upon her how much of an influence the show could have and having the topic of autonomy and abuse in such a 
in a very much more direct way because it's not just an allegory. Yes, she was exactly. abused by exactly. Kilgrave. Well, yes, and I think I think that's absolutely the point that I would also want to make, which is the show is pointing to the fact that this is a, a psychological, you know, um, control that's being imposed, and it's more about how the, the the woman in this case, mostly it's women who experience this, you know, they're positioned, and it's a slow process often built on a foundation of a kind of cliche of romance you know I I adore you I want to I want you to spend every moment of your life with me I never want you to think about anyone else I'm going to bring you gifts but then you've got to do what I say and if you don't do what I say I will punish you to the point which escalates to a very often quite violent level so coercive control is a very big problem and at the time I was writing a paper about the show one of my papers which in fact dealt with um, partly with coercive control. I had recently had a doctoral candidate complete her doctorate and gain her PhD. She had been looking at um, narrative and coercive control in her own research. She's coming from a social work background but was also a writer. And I actually learned a lot from my my student, Josephine Brown, who uh, I think um, really had a good way of talking about this as something that's very much about mind control, which is why the metaphor in Jessica Jones works so well. And it's reinforced, as she would argue, and I think we both agree with her, Sarah, it's reinforced by a culture which privileges certain behaviours. So when men are, you know, overly... um, present in your life you know and and want you to spend every minute with them that can it's not necessary but can signal um that there's a kind of um possession going on so when we come to things like vanessa and the possession that um the demon tries to obtain over her that is a metaphor but it also does just like in jessica jones case it reflects a way of being that is usually very limiting for women and um, and it's interesting that Jessica Jones is a character who never goes public about being superhero at least towards the end of the series she starts to but for most of the time in the series she's hiding partly because she was originally hiding from Kilgrave partly because she doesn't want to be seen to be having the powers that she does and she sort of goes around quietly helping people through her agency finding things out you know setting limits for people where they need. But on the whole, she's very private. The sense of her having to claim a public persona as a leader, as someone who's actually got something positive to contribute to society, that's an idea that only creeps up on her slowly. And I think that too is a theme that points to the way that women often hide their abilities. They hide their their potential contribution to society. In the most extreme sense, I guess it's that men are expected to sort of flaunt their power or to use it as a sort of hate, as to sort of say, like, if you if you're with me, we'll become more powerful. It's us against the world. This is a way that both the men in Jessica Jones and in Penny Dreadful speak. Um, and in general, that it's kind of sexy if a man is powerful, or dominant or controlling and that it's like an alluring aspect of them that they have control of their lives and they invite the women to like also control them so it becomes more stable a more secure lifestyle but when women display this kind of control or power either by lily the the frankenstein bride in penny dreadful or jessica jones they become monstrous they become enemies or fearful or i mean the men are also fearful of course and the series do portray the men as antagonistic it's not that they glorify them but the 
the difference between how the women see themselves and the men see themselves in the series, I think, are the are the biggest contrasts that, like you said, Jessica goes into hiding, maybe also because she sees herself as monstrous. Yeah, and she feels guilty. Also, she has a guilt that she's give, let herself, somehow let herself be a bit, be, um, the used by by Kilgrave and she she struggles with that for most of the series it's only towards the end did she realize actually that wasn't her fault I think uh if you want to round off maybe give you some of your thoughts about what the the future will bring on this topic do you think that the future series or uh, fictionalizations of women are going to be even more self-aware more like Jessica Jones or do you think that they'll still dabble in these very like uh in their own minds, uh, dealing with women that are frail and weak um, and men that are still powerful and strong? Or do you think that it's going to be sort of diversified more? I would hope after a show like Jessica Jones that not only the depiction of women in narrative, screen narrative or even literary narrative, might become more complex and, um, and open, but I also think that what the show did was to demonstrate that women can play a very important role in the film industry and the television industry. Um, one of the really innovative things about this show was that it had a female showrunner and a whole suite of female um, workers on the show. Perhaps in the future endeavours of making these kinds of like um, very uh, in-depth and nuanced portraits of women who are either monstrous or think they're monstrous or other people yeah. think they're monsters, that at least women should be part of portraying those stories. So it's not just men telling a perspective right. on them, but it's women that include their own uh, thoughts about like how dangerous yes. women can be or uh, not be in, in certain scenarios. That's a very key part of it, Sarah, but as well as that, I think it's partly about what careers are open to women in the screen industry because mm. about five years ago it was very much, and, and research has shown that it's very much a, how was a male-dominated industry, but there has been a shift in the last few years and Jessica Jones is one of the shows that has demonstrated that and I'm hoping it'll be a great precedent for um, women directors, writers, producers to, to really um, gain traction in their careers. So it's not just about how we portray and represent women, but it's also about the kinds of industries and the people involved, the diversity of the uh, people in the industries that really shape how we see the world. Now that we're all watching so much screen time, um, mm. I think it's important that a device, diverse perspective comes through. I think that's a, a really great note to end it on. That's, I think, a very good summary of it. Thanks for listening to today. And thank you to Stephanie Green for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Lovely to be with you. Uh, I'm Sarah Sander, and you can find more about our research on our website, imaginingtheimpossible.com, or on Instagram or Facebook at Imagining the Impossible. Thank you.